Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For those of us that are parents or grandparents, we're told over and over that parenting, that raising children, is the most important job we will ever have. The assumption is that if we buy baby Einstein, enroll our kids in the best preschools, sometimes costing as much as some colleges, provide just the right mix of extracurricular activity, teachers, and pour in the right measure of self-esteem, they will turn out as if from a factory, the perfect child ready to take on the challenges of leadership in their world and continue to be part of the parenting industrial complex. But is any of this true? What do children with all their curiosity really need? Do they need to be molded or sculpted, or do they simply need room to grow with lots of love as the fertilizer? These are some of the questions that my guest, Alison Gopnik, has been asking and that she examines in her new book, The Gardener and the Carpenter. Alison Gopnik is a professor of psychology and an affiliate professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. She's an internationally recognized leader in the study of childhood learning and development, She writes the Mind and Matter column for the Wall Street Journal and is the author of the previous book, The Philosophical Baby. It is my pleasure to welcome Alison Gopnik back to this program to talk about her newest work, The Gardener and the Carpenter, what the new science of child development tells us about the relationship between parents and children. Alison Gopnik, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to have you here. This notion that being a parent, that parenting is a kind of work, that it is a job we take on. How did that idea begin to evolve? Well, it's interesting that the very word parenting as a verb is very recent. So it really only even shows up as a word uh, around 1960, and it only became popular in the 1970s. So it was really only at the end of the 20th century that this idea seemed to take hold that uh, that parenting, that there was this job, this activity that you had to do that shaped your children to come out a particular way. Now, of course, being a parent is something that people have done forever. Mother and father are as old as any words in the English language. But the idea that you weren't just being a parent, but were doing this thing called parenting, that's relatively new. And what was the impetus for that, as you understand it? How did that notion begin to take root? Well, I think that what happened was that for most of human history, the way that we learned how to care for children, to take care of children, was by taking care of children ourselves and watching other people take care of children. One of the things that's most distinctive from an evolutionary perspective about humans is that we have this very, very long period of childhood. And in order for, to take care of those helpless children, we also have a very wide range of caregivers. So older siblings take care of children, grandmothers evolved to take care of children. Uh, we have cousins and uncles and aunts. So for most of human history, by the time you had a child yourself, you would have taken care of your own younger siblings and younger cousins. And you would have seen lots of people, not just your own parents, but grandmothers and aunts and uncles and friends um, taking care of children. Now, I think what happened toward the end of the 20th century was that as families became smaller, as they became more mobile, as people had children older and older, Really, for the first time in history, you had someone who was, say, 35 or 40 years old who had a baby who had never taken care of a child before and hadn't even had a chance to see people take care of children. And that's become even more true uh, more recently as even things like teenage babysitters have sort of disappeared from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. So you had people who had spent years going to college and working 
Um, and when they had children, they treated uh, having a child as being like, say, going to school or, or working, um, even though they hadn't had very much experience of just being a caregiver. It also produced this idea of wanting children to turn out a certain way, that, that there was this almost this factory notion of trying to, as you talk about, sculpt the perfect child. Yeah, I think that came along with the picture that comes from having spent a lot of time working. So, for example, if you're actually working, you have goals and benchmarks, and you try to achieve those goals and benchmarks. That's a way of being someone who's effectively working. And the model that um, that I, a lot of the, the model that emerged in the 20th century was kind of like being a carpenter that you could just get the right materials, get the right expertise, shape this child, and what would happen is that a child of a particular kind would come out at the other end. Um, and that's a good model for work. It's not such a good model for being in a relationship with another person. And in particular, it's neither scientifically nor, as it were, philosophically, I think, a good model to describe the relationship between parents and children. And as you've pointed out, there's something like 60,000 books about parenting that somebody can find that it kind of gave, <laughs> that this need that you're talking about as it evolved gave rise to, to an entire business. Yeah, I mean, it's literally a billion-dollar industry of uh, advice and books and toys and things that are supposed to make your child come out a particular way. And I think this has actually gotten more rather than less intense uh, recently because there's a sense that things like being educated or having knowledge are really important for your future success um, and that you could start that process uh, when children are very young. And I think inadvertently we developmental psychologists have contributed to this because over the past 30 years, there's been this enormous revolution in our understanding of babies and young children. And in particular, we've discovered through research in my lab and others like it that even the youngest children learn more than we ever would have thought. The trouble is when we started saying that we started telling people about this science, people got the message that young children were learning more. But the message they took from that was that that meant that we had to teach them more. And in fact, the lesson of the science was exactly the opposite. Your children are designed to learn spontaneously from observing other people and from playing. And, and teaching can even limit the uh, kind of imagination that is so characteristic of very young children. So I think it was the combination of people not really knowing how to care for children, feeling as if there was more and more pressure to make children smart, and then misinterpreting the science that ended up leading to this giant parenting industry. Of course, another part of it, it became almost competition, particularly among middle-class parents, with respect to how the children were going to turn out and what they were going to do with their lives. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the things that I say is, you know, the, the picture is that somehow we're going to make children better and then sort of under our breath, and you say, yeah, well, better than what? And sort of under our breath, the parents say, yeah, better than that kid next door. Um, that picture, uh, that very unusual picture in the history, again, in the history of humankind. And I think it's also important to say uh, at the same time that the inequalities between children became more and more intense as the 20th century gave, uh, gave way to the 21st century. So there's lots of evidence that early experience really is extremely important and that children who are neglected or children who are 
poor suffer as adults as a result. And then having things like universal preschool or support for children or parental leave, all those things really do make a difference in children's adult lives. But again, that somehow got translated into the picture that among middle-class parents, that if you could just get this extra edge, uh, your child would come out better in the long run. And that's not only not true as a scientific picture, it actually goes against the whole evolutionary purpose of childhood. Expand on that a little bit. Well, there's, as I say, there's this puzzle about why we humans in particular have this very long period of childhood. It seems kind of contradictory. Why do we have to invest so much time and energy into just keeping those children alive? And at least one idea is that childhood is really a period of possibility. So one of the things that's most distinctive about human beings is that each generation takes the information we've gotten from the previous generation and then revises it, changes it, considers new possibilities, does things a bit differently. And it's that period, that protected period of childhood, that lets that variability and possibility uh, flourish. It's in childhood all the way up to adolescence where you can try something out that's different from all the other things that other generations have tried out, things, something that's unpredictable, that's unexpected. So even if we could shape our children to come out a particular way, it would be defeating the whole process of childhood to do it. The whole process, the whole reason for childhood is to give the human species a kind of chance to reboot, a chance to uh, try out something new, uh, try out a new way of being in the world. What do we learn from looking around the world and seeing how other places, other countries take on this challenge, both in the West and in the rest of the world? Well, again, if we can look both historically and at different, in different cultures and at different times, um, we have provided many more resources to support people who are taking care of children. So part of what has happened now is that in a kind of post-industrial society, the only way that we can think about human activity is it's either a form of production or a form of consumption. So having children either becomes a very expensive luxury or a very badly paid job. We don't really have a way of providing resources or support just for relationships, just for care. And for most of human history, that just was because there was a big extended network of, uh, of people, a village, a kinship group who kind of spontaneously could say, yeah, of course you take care of children. It's much harder to know how to arrange that in a, a complicated, big world. But actually, most places in the world have figured it out. Most places have... Uh, parental leave. Most places have kinds of support, parent visiting programs, preschool, things that allow parents to uh, to take care of children, and not just parents, but other people as well. It's a very, very different picture—a picture of a kind of collective responsibility uh, that we have for children. At the same time that we have these individual attachments and responsibilities for children. Um, and somehow that picture has never quite taken hold in the United States, and one of the consequences is that 20% of American children are growing up in poverty, at the same time that there's a billion-dollar useless parenting industry. <laughs> so we don't, give, we don't, give, we don't have resources. To, if, we, if we took the amount of money that gets spent on parenting books every year, we'd be going pretty far towards having universal preschool and parental leave. <laughs> Talk about the underlying aspects of safety and stability for kids and how important those things are. Well, 
an alternative to this um, picture of the parent as a kind of uh, uh, carpenter uh, is to think about being a parent as uh, being like a gardener. Now, what a gardener does, at least most gardeners do, is to provide a an environment, a rich space in which many, many different kinds of plants can grow unexpectedly. If you're at least a gardener like me, and I think most gardeners know that nothing quite works out the way you plant, and that's what makes gardening so satisfying. Um, So what you really have to do is provide a kind of nurturing space in which diversity and possibility can flourish, kind of ecosystem, really. And, you know, in a way, a metaphor you could use is that our contemporary parenting complex is kind of like a monoculture. It's like having all the same kinds of potatoes that we want to come out. And we know that that's not a very stable or productive way of of growing plants, um, and it's not a very good way of having children either. So the thought is that we could provide this space, this nurturance, this commitment, which allows possibility to flourish. One of the things that I talk about in the book that I think is very interesting, a very interesting aspect of human beings we don't even think about, is that when we have a child, we become completely committed to just that particular individual. So sort of no matter what the child is like, we're committed to loving that child and making life as good for that child as we possibly can. And that's a very good evolutionary strategy for ensuring this kind of diversity. From evolution's perspective, um, we are are designed to nurture all of these children. Um, And the way that we do that is by loving them, keeping them, giving them a sense of stability, giving them a sense, and at the same time, giving them a sense of space. Now, there's some very deep paradoxes involved in being a parent as opposed to parenting. And I think thinking of being a parent is a much better way of describing the relationship than, than the verb parenting. Right. And, uh, and we, you know, we have to provide children with uh, a safe and stable space, even though we know the whole point of doing that is so that they can take risks and have adventures and go out in the world. In some ways, if our children can't fail as adults, then we haven't succeeded as parents because the point of being a parent is to, create a creature who's completely autonomous and independent of and uh, from us uh, to create a creature who can think of new ideas and take risks. And, you know, they're not risks if there isn't some possibility of failure. Um, so being a parent has these tensions kind of built into it. And I think we ignore those tensions at our peril. And one of the things that we do, in addition, as you talk about, is obsess on the smallest details as if they're going to make any kind of a difference. Yeah, it's a bit ironic. Again, some of the big things that we know are important for children, like just having resources and love and uh, uh, stable space to grow up in, um, those things we don't really provide resources for. But middle-class parents obsess over, you know, should you co-sleep with your child? Should you let them cry it out? Should you have your stroller face forwards or face backwards? How much homework should your child have? And all the evidence is that none of those things, those small variations in parenting, make very much difference in the long run. Um, parent Children are very sensitive to the context and culture in which they grow up. And they grow up in all sorts of unpredictable and unexpected ways. I think I think parents and children would just be happier during the process of being a parent 
um, if there was less anxiety, guilt, obsession over things that actually, from a scientific perspective, are not likely to make much difference in the long run, and more satisfaction and joy in the process of being a parent itself. Of course, one of the things that's going on, it's an extension of something you were saying before in terms of looking at it as work, is that like so many other things today, we keep looking for some kind of standard, some kind of metric, some kind of way to measure outcomes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the one of the things that you do when you work is you try to measure outcomes. You try to see how things are going to come out. Um, and you can see that, for example, now in what's happening in preschool. So again, one of the great triumphs in a way of child development was the movement for universal preschool. And I think developmental psychologists are very happy that that's happened. That is a way in a big industrial society that we can care for children. But unfortunately, there's this kind of pincer movement for, with parents who want their kids to go to Harvard on the one hand and policymakers who want metrics or outcomes on the other hand, um, which has made preschools look more and more like schools. Now, schools are bad enough for school-age children. They're really terrible. It's a really terrible model for, um, for very young children. Um, and I think preschool teachers have intuitively known this for a long time, that especially very young children learn by watching, participating in what other people are doing, uh, and playing and exploring themselves. That's the, the wellspring for this amazing uh, creativity and possibility that we see in young children. But parents at preschoolers are under increasing pressure, both from parents and from policymakers, to do something that will give you a specific outcome. And again, it's ironic because from an evolutionary perspective, the whole point of having children is not to have specific outcomes. It's to have a whole lot of different possibilities and variations. And that's really where uh, resilience and thriving, um, uh, that's really where resilience and thriving come from. I want to come back to this idea of schools because one of the things that we've seen is that there's been so much pressure on schools to become part of this kind of parenting industrial complex and that schools have been acting in ways that are an extension of this business of parenting. Yeah, that's true in schools in general, and it's particularly true, as I say, in what's happened with preschools, mm-hmm. where kindergarten now looks more and more like first grade, and, and now nursery schools, and children are being uh, given ADHD drugs when they're three years old because that's what parents feel they need to be able to uh, accomplish things at school. It's kind of insane, actually. But it's also important to remember that school itself is a very recent uh, institution. So in the book, I talk about not just preschoolers, but also school-aged children and adolescents. And we forget that schools, as we experience them now, are only a couple of hundred years old. And they were designed at the time of the Industrial Revolution to make people have the skills that they need to be factory workers. Um, We act as if schooling is a a kind of uh, eternal way of educating children. And in fact, again, for most of human history, the way that school-aged children and adolescents were educated was by various kinds of apprenticeships, by taking on skills with someone who was a master at those skills. And I think it's striking that to, to this day, children often seem to enjoy and participate more in things like sports classes or music classes uh, than they do in the official academic classes. And I think that's because those are the last places where you still see this apprenticeship model, which we certainly could use for things like math or science or, or writing. 
So even schools, again, it's ironic that when people hear about how much children learn, they have this very parochial, recent model of learning that comes from schools, a very strange institution that has only been around for a short period of human history. You were talking before about your research, the, the research you've done, and also in research going on in other places. Talk a little bit about this from a scientific perspective and what we've learned about how children learn, what brain research tells us, and how all of it is counter to what we've been doing. Well, there's, as I say, there's been this marvelous revolution in our understanding of children's learning, including discovering, for example, that children's brains are more plastic, more variable than adult brains are. And some of the research that we've been doing in my lab recently has shown that, for, for example, if you give um, four-year-olds and adults a problem to solve that has an unexpected solution, one that's not obvious, the four-year-olds are actually better at getting to that solution than the adults are. Um, and that's consistent with the fact that if you look at, say, a four-year-old brain, they're developing many, many more new neural pathways than uh, we have as adults. So what happens is we start out by trying out lots of options, both in our brains and in our minds. And as we get older, the things that work well get reinforced, get stronger, get more efficient, and the paths that are not taken disappear. So we start out with a brain that's very plastic and very good at considering new options, very good at learning, and we end up with a brain that's very good at acting, very good at doing things, not so good at changing, not so good at learning, not so good at altering what it does in the light of new circumstances. Um, computer scientists talk about a contrast between exp- exploration and exploitation. So exploration is just considering all the different possibilities that you possibly could explore, and exploitation is trying to just get one particular thing done. And it seems as if from an evolutionary perspective, part of why we have a long protected childhood is because that's the time when we do exploration. That's the time when we're devoted to just exploring possibilities. And then as adults, we take those possibilities that we explored when we were children, that learning we did, and we put it to use to do all the practical things that we need to do. Although it's still true that uh, for human beings, at least, even adults can sometimes be uh, exploratory and creative. But none of us adults is as exploratory and creative as every single three-year-old. How hard is it going to be, in your view, to begin to change this model that we've evolved, that we've been talking about, this sense of, of parenting as a job and looking for metrics and outcomes? How difficult, in your view, is it going to be to begin to turn that around, both in terms of personal behavior of, of those that are parents and also in terms of public policy? Well, I think in terms of parents, there's, it's, it's interesting because I think at the same time that this model is so pervasive, I think parents also intuitively feel that there's something wrong with it. So, you know, they read all those parenting books and then they say, you know, this is just crazy. I'm just going to follow my own intuitions. This isn't, this isn't really capturing what real life is about. So I think, I think we're at a moment when uh, that the individual parents are sort of ripe for change, although say the pressures, the competitive pressures on parents are, are still there and are, are going to be hard to resist. And I think the same thing's true with policies. So for the very first time, people are treating issues like preschool as, as really political issues. Even, even there, though, um, I think it's hard for policymakers to shift 
from always thinking about what's the outcome going to be down the line versus thinking the reason why we should have preschool is just because it's the responsibility of any community to take care of its children. And there has been so much from a policy perspective, there's been pushback to that very idea, to the idea that it takes a village. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem, again, is that there's this tension, which isn't very well understood in in most kind of political models, Mm -hmm. between the fact that we have this incredibly strong individual relationship with each child. And and in the book, I talk about some of the scientific bases for that uh, set of attachments and relationships. And yet, we have to make decisions collectively about things like policy that are going to affect all children. And I think often people feel as if there's a kind of tension about, well, I, you know, I want to support my children. I don't know whether I want to support all those other people's <laughs> children. Um, so if there was some way to sort of, um, we need to have some way to ramp up our intuitions about just loving and caring for individual children to loving and caring for all the children in a group or in a nation or in a society. Alison Gopnik, her book is The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Tells Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children. Alison, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, Jeff. Thank you.